Jesus, we don't have the words that bring eternal life, Lord. Only you do. And our heart goes out to those that don't know you because we know we know that you in you is life and without you there is no life. And we also know your words bring life. So as we ask that um, we might adequately and completely share your word without holding back anything and without adding anything. And Lord, we know that we're not capable of doing this apart from the Holy Spirit. So I just pray that you would Open our hearts, open our eyes, give us ears to hear, and help those that are not familiar with your word, and help us that have studied it for a while and still know how little we do know. Lord, we just bow before you in thanksgiving for your honor and your glory. We ask you to bless this time and honor your name. Amen. It's always difficult to to know how to say certain things, realizing that a lot of people have read these words many, many times and are familiar with them, and there are always people that haven't read them at all or have read them just superficially and don't understand them very well at all. And so how do you walk a middle line between the two? And all you can do is um, pray and ask the Lord to guide you and help you and help others. And that's what we are doing this morning. Last week, we were in the 15th chapter of Mark, and we read about a third of it. And today we're going to read a little more in the 15th chapter, but even less than a third. And what I want to read to begin with is in Mark 15, verses 16 through 20. And all this is happening while Jesus is in front of Pilate. He's been turned over to Pilate, who is the Roman governor, and the Jews... And when you say Jews, you're talking about the the leadership of the Jews, the ones that are in positions of prominence, of power. And because of their jealousy, because they're afraid they're going to lose their position, they hate Jesus. They don't believe what he's saying. They cannot deny the miracles that he's done because they've done them. He's done them right in front of them. But nevertheless... They're afraid they're going to lose their positions of authority. And they hate Jesus. And because of the envy, because of the hate, they come up with all kinds of reasons to turn him over to Pilate. Most of them spurious, of course. Meaning fake. But they try nevertheless. But we get to the point that the crowd says, Crucify Jesus. They're offered Barabbas, who's a murderer, who's in prison, because there's a custom every year to turn over to release one prisoner. But they won't have any part of it. 
They want Jesus condemned. And so the crowd, because of the stirring up of the people that are against Jesus, they continue to say, crucify him, crucify him. And the last part of um, the verse before where we're going to start, it says, So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the text reads, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. We know we're not just looking at a a good man, someone that gives up his life for his family or friends or country. What we're looking at with Jesus is the payment of a ransom for sin. He's given himself as a ransom for all that will put their trust in him All those that put their trust in him in the past, before he was, based on what they knew from the Old Testament, and all those who will ever live that will trust him in the future. Just in case you don't realize it, crucifixion is a terrible, agonizing way to die. We know a lot about it from a lot of different sources. But we don't know a lot about it from the Gospels. The Gospels are very abbreviated when they talk about crucifixion. In fact, all Mark says about it is, and they crucified him. No details about what that involves, what it does to the body. We know these things because of the surrounding testimony of other people historians and everything like that, but we don't know it from the Gospels. Jesus hung on the cross from 9 o'clock in the morning, the Jewish third hour, until 3 in the afternoon, the ninth hour, by Jewish time. Mark skips over almost all of the first three hours on the cross to the sixth hour which is noon. And that's when the sun is darkened over the whole land. And then he skips to the ninth hour. And that's when Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible does not focus on the physical aspects of Jesus' suffering. It doesn't give us the details of the crucifixion or of the scourging. 
that Jesus endured, it gives us no descriptive phrases of either one. And that's something when you consider what that involved and what it did to the Lord of glory. Both the Old Testament and history, they do, and it's in themselves, tell us some of the horrifying details of both. The scourging took place outside the palace or the governor's headquarters in the presence of all the people. It's a public scourging, a humiliating thing, and it's designed to be humiliating, and it's designed to... to just show Jesus in the worst possible light. That's why all of the things that take place, take place to to humiliate him. And after the scourging, the next Jesus is taken inside and the text says the whole battalion of soldiers was called together. Think about that. They didn't have three or four soldiers. It says the whole battalion. A battalion or cohort is one-tenth of a legion. A legion is 6,000 people. So a, a battalion is 600. Now, it often didn't reach that many people. It could be as few as 200. But nevertheless, that's a lot of people for one man. And, it, and in front of these people... They're doing all kinds of things they can to humiliate him. Sources indicate that these were auxiliary or reserve troops brought up by Pilate from Caesarea to Jerusalem. They were non-Jews recruited from various parts of the empire. They didn't like the hot, dusty, miserable climate of Palestine. And they didn't like the Jews. And so this provided them the perfect opportunity to show how much they didn't like the Jews and they didn't like the king of the Jews. And so it's a a ready-made opportunity for them to vent their frustration and their distaste and their hatred. Purple was a royal color. So a robe of that color, no matter how faded and tattered it might have been, was great for mocking purposes because it was the color, purple was the color of royalty. And it was on purpose that they did this. And they made a crown for Jesus. But this one was made of thorns, another mocking. And it was described by some as Preston knows, and he was talking about it a week or so ago with me, some of the thorns on it could have been as long as 12 inches. 12 inches. Pressed down on the head, on the crown, which is a very sensitive part of the body. Pressed down, causing blood to stream down. A cruel mockery of Caesar's crown. And that's what it's intended to be, a mockery. These soldiers have got Jesus standing, sitting, bent over, whatever, doing everything they can to mock. So pushed down on his head, these thorns would have caused great bleeding and intense pain. 
Then there were the fake salutes to this king, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, a mockery of Hail Caesar. Then the beatings and the spitting and the kneeling down and pretend submission to Jesus. All of this to Jesus who had just on on had just on just went through a bunch of all the scourging. So he scourged first, and a lot of people didn't survive it. The beating was so severe that a lot of people never made it through it, ripping the body. And then after that, he's in front of these troops doing all of this to him. And this is where Mark says, they led him out to crucify him. But John adds a little bit here to Mark's abbreviated message. John 19 says Pilate made one more attempt to move the crowd to pity by bringing Jesus out, wearing the robe with the crown of thorns. And he said, behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no guilt in him. But it was no use. Satan had hardened their hearts. There was no turning back. And once again, they cried out, Crucify! Crucify! Jesus was first mocked at the Jewish trial the night before in front of all the Jewish leaders. And there they beat him and they spit on him and put hoods on him and, and covered his face and continued the beating. And now the soldiers are doing worse even than what the priests did. And they're doing it while he's agonizing from the flogging that ripped his flesh apart. And finally Jesus is mocked by the mob around the cross those passing by while he was on the cross scoffed at him and said aha you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days save yourself and come down from the cross and it says even the chief priests and scribes continued mocking him as he was hanging on the cross and the two thieves One on either side, they mocked him also. Remember how this whole sequence of events started. It started with Judas giving Jesus a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane as from a devoted brother, which was actually a mocking kiss of betrayal. So that's where it started as far as this sequence of mocking and ridiculing of Jesus. You know, it's difficult for us to focus on anything beyond the horror of the intense physical suffering that Jesus endured. Yet scripture says a whole lot, a whole lot more about the abuse of Jesus, <clears throat> the ridicule, the disdain, the mocking, that's a unique feature of the execution of Jesus. This normally did not happen. 
not to this extent. This is a continuous thing by everybody he comes in contact with. Those that crucified and scourged Jesus saw him as one to be laughed at. Many saw him as a lunatic. A lunatic that was deluded, who thought of himself as a king, and the Jews, who the Jews tried to pass off as some threat to Caesar. It's not difficult to see why the Jews hated the Romans, because Rome was often a, a cruel occupying army that didn't allow any dissent from their rule. The Romans hated the Jews. Well, because the Jews hated them, but also because they were a rebellious people that refused to honor the Roman gods, especially Caesar. One radical group among the Jews, the Zealots, <coughs> kept daggers between beneath their robes for the purpose of stabbing Romans. If you remember... Simon the Zealot was one of Jesus' twelve apostles. At any rate, the level of scorn that was heaped on Jesus was intense, and it was beyond anything normal. That was not the case with crucifixion. It was not unique with Jesus. According to historians, there were many thousands of people who were crucified in the land of Palestine around this time period, with many going through similar acts that caused great physical agony. The first uh, memory or recording of any crucifixion seemed to be Darius the Mede, who conquered Babylon. And when he conquered Babylon... This, the, the, the historians say the whole land was littered with crucified Babylonians. But this was a unique thing of the Romans. And they, they did this as an act to cause dread and fear in a conquered people. And they left the, the, the body on the cross many times until it just began to decay because they wanted people to see what you, what happened to everybody that dared stand against Rome. And then when the body was finished, or when a certain length of time was finished, the body was thrown on the, on the, the dung heap of the city, the garbage. This is why Jesus uses Gehenna, the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem as an example of what hell is like, where the worm never dies and the fire never goes out. But of course, this didn't happen to Jesus, which is later on. This is just a, I just wanted to give a, a brief message this morning to give us time to think about this. At any rate, the level of scorn that was heaped on Jesus was intense beyond anything that was normal. 
you can read when Jerusalem was conquered in 70 AD. They had to quit crucifying people because they ran out of trees to cut down. They ran out of lumber and they ran out of space. That's the only thing that stopped them from doing even more than they did. A Roman citizen could not be crucified. It was against their law for that to happen. And it was so awful that in many places it was illegal for a woman to view it because of how horrible it was. And again, it didn't exist in, in any great way after Darius until Rome introduced it. But, and Preston's already read some of this to you, a thousand years before this, David, in the book of Psalms, says in Psalm 22, 14 through 18, it's here somewhere, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, broken pottery. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They've pierced my hands and feet. One thousand years before crucifixion, David is writing this. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing... They cast lots. 300 years later, Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 7, he says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And we're not done. Because 300 years after that, excuse me, 150 years after that, after Isaiah, we have Zechariah. And Zechariah, in the 12th chapter, the 10th verse says this, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, 
so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then finally, at a time yet to come, This is what happens with a new Bible when you can't get your pages apart. Well, the other one got broken in so much that it was falling apart. The Revelation, the first chapter, verses 7 and 8. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is who is to come, the Almighty. So crucifixion and scourging are awful beyond belief. Mocking, beating, ridiculing, and despising Jesus. And they have everlasting consequences for those who do this without repentance. Jesus says that the guards are going to be held responsible, that the priests are going to be held responsible. Pilate's going to be held responsible, but the ones that are most held responsible are the ones that turned him over, the chief priest. So what brought agony to Jesus? What was wrenching to Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? When he was thinking about what was coming, because he knows what's coming. And it wasn't the crucifixion itself as far as the pain. It wasn't the scourging. It was the anticipation of divine anger falling on him. Of drinking the cup of God's wrath against sinners. Crushing him as he became sin for everyone who would believe on him. That's what was crushing to Jesus. He knew if he became sin for the people, for his people, that God would turn from him. And that was unbearable. That's why in three separate prayers, Jesus prays the same thing. Remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The horror for Jesus was being separated from God. And that should be the horror for everyone. That's what we need to tell people. The horror of being separated from God forever. Jesus was horrified that for a minuscule period of time, he was going to be separated from God who he had never been separated from before. And it caused him great anguish of soul. He didn't think about the crucifixion as far as the nails. Although, you know, anybody is going to repel and horror from this sort of thing. But what occupied his mind was being separated from God. When God turned away from him because Jesus became sin for us. 
Lord, I pray that that might be before our hearts and minds at all times. Truly, that what horrified you should horrify us more than anything else. Lord, you're not calling us to do so many of these things that Jesus did, but you are calling us to, to be prepared for whatever you might ordain for our lives. We just bow before you, Lord, and pray that our hearts would be continually changed more and more to be like yours. Amen.